Good morning. If Jesus Christ is your living hope, would you give him a round of applause this morning? My name is Phil. I'm one of the ministers here at Libby Christian Church. We want you to know how happy we are that you have chosen to come and celebrate the resurrection of our Savior with us today. It really is a joy to see the church packed, and we're hoping to do it again next service as well. So you are a big part of celebrating the resurrection of Christ, but I want you to know in heaven that celebration rings all around the world. And as it does, what a joyful sound that must be in the throne room of God. Pretty cool to think about it. Let's give God one more round of applause. <clears throat> so we get started this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something kind of goofy. I'm going to ask you to clear your mind to the best of your ability. Clear your mind for the next three minutes and get ready to concentrate really hard. We're going to show you a video and I'm going to ask you to pay as close of attention as you possibly can to the things that are going on with this. Three minutes, dial in as tight as possible. What's this? This is the show game. I'm going to hide this Hershey's Kiss under this cup, and the object is for you to pay attention and follow along and try to guess which cup the Hershey's Kiss is under at the end. Let's stop there for just a second because I want to keep you honest. Would you turn to the person next to you and tell them which cup you believe the Hershey Kiss is under? Just turn and tell them real quick. All right, perfect. Dial back in. Try to guess if it's in the left cup, the middle cup, or the right cup. Let's check the left cup. The middle cup. If you guess the middle cup, you got it right. All right, let's pause so one more time. Just one more time, Terry. How many of you got it right? All right, keep watching. A little more complicated. I've added an extra pair of hands, and I've added additional colors here. But that's only to distract you from the pink cups. The pink cups will always have, one of the pink cups will always have the Hershey Kiss underneath. So let's get started. So can you guess where the Hershey Kiss is? <laughs> I noticed there was a group of overachievers over here that were applauding themselves that second go around because they knew right where that Hershey Kiss was. How many of you actually saw the duck the first time around? There are about three of you. How many of you saw the fifth hand that came in? A few more, and how many of you noticed the change in colors? A few more even with that. That is a psychological test given to prove a concept called inattentional blindness. The entire concept says that we get so focused on one thing that we miss everything else that's going on around us. We get so focused on one idea or so focused on one picture or one video that all the other activity that's going on around us, completely lost. Inattentional blindness. Now here's a way to prove that even out of popular culture today. With the rise of smartphones, 
people are walking, pedestrians are walking with their heads down, staring at their phones all over our country. And it has caused quite a problem. In the year 2012, there were 78,000 pedestrian injuries in the United States of America. Of those 78,000 injuries, they are predicting, or not predicting, they're estimating that 7,800 of them, 10%, were fatalities. The fatalities of those 7,800, according to the best estimates they have, and all of these figures come out of emergency rooms around the country, 4,200 of those people were distracted as they were walking, looking at phones. Now, here's where that gets really intriguing. Since 2012, they believe that all of those numbers, the 78,000, the 7,800, the 4,200, have gone up by 35%. So there are places around the United States of America that are trying to combat this new syndrome of inattentional blindness as it relates to cell phones. They're trying to change the whole course of it by passing legislation. Like in the city of New York, they have lowered their speed limits from 25 to 20 because of the number of pedestrians that are walking through their streets with their heads down. In the states of Minnesota and Utah, South Carolina, North Carolina, and even Washington State, they are passing legislation referred to as pedestrians first legislation. There are some places like the city of Philadelphia that actually put forward the idea of putting e-lanes on their sidewalks so that people that are walking with their heads down can just stay in the e-lanes. Now the funny part about that is they put it forward as a joke but the pedestrians in the city of Philadelphia said, please do that. One of them went so far as to say, I am such a severe texter and walker that there is no way that I could quit on my own. So they're saying, please pass laws, paint stripes, do whatever it takes so that I don't have to worry about getting hit. That is pretty crazy. This whole idea of blindness that comes when we are just so focused on things, even walking, would seem to be a new idea, a new concept within our culture and societies, but it isn't. That distracted walking has been going on since the days of the Bible. Think about this, King David was distracted when he was walking on the roof of his palace and great sin followed. Solomon, his son, would say that as he looked around his kingdom, he actually saw princes walking through the streets like slaves, hanging their heads down. They had lost sight of the things they should be doing, and these princes were now walking around in a stupor. Pretty crazy when things like that happen. But when we get into the New Testament, we still see the whole idea of distracted walking happening. Think about Peter, when he got out of the boat and was walking on the water, he got so focused on Jesus that he was actually doing something that nobody else had done, but then he got distracted, began to sink, and had Jesus not intervened, he would have drowned. But one of the most powerful and pointed examples of distracted walking in all of the Bible shows up at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Would you turn there with me? If you brought a Bible with you, Luke chapter 24. We'll pick up in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen visions of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Inadvertent blindness. They were distracted in their walking. If these two guys had been walking along the road in 2019, you could imagine that they would have been talking to each other, yes, but their heads would have been down, staring at their cell phones, reading the headlines of everything that had happened in Jerusalem, and commenting to one another about the things that they were reading. They were distracted. They were walking, but they were distracted, so distracted that had Jesus not intervened with them, they might have been run over by a camel, ended up in the emergency room. Any number of things could have happened in a moment like that. The biggest part of their story was this. Jesus was right there in their midst, the resurrected Christ, and they could not see him. They were hung up on the crucifixion. They were hung up on the court proceedings that had preceded the crucifixion. They were hung up on all the details that had come out of the city of Jerusalem. And when the resurrected Christ walked with them, they couldn't see him. That still happens today. That type of spiritual blindness still happens today. We have the resurrected Christ with us. We have the resurrected Jesus walking right beside us, talking with us. We have the resurrected Christ working in our lives, bringing about God's plans. But we get so caught up in the things that are happening in our world that we miss it. We don't see him. We miss the fact that he is in our presence and in our lives. And that's pretty tragic the way that happens. 
As we come into Easter, one of the joys of this season is the fact that it opens our eyes to the resurrection. It opens our eyes to the power of God. It opens our eyes and our hearts to be able to receive the things that God is doing in our life through His Son, Jesus. But sadly enough, as we move away from Easter, the blindness sets back in. And we tend to not see Him. We tend to not recognize Him. We tend to not acknowledge that He is right in our midst. That's been going on for a long time too. There are a number of things in our world that cause that type of blindness. Go back into the New Testament and even look around us today, and one of the things that you will see that causes us to get distracted, that causes us to not see the Lord for who He is, is our desire to experience miracles. We want them in our life all the time. We want to live a life of miracles. And when we need them the most, we long for nothing else more than the opportunity to experience a miracle. But miracles can, in and of themselves, distract us from the resurrected Christ. It's really quite interesting if you were to pick it apart and see the way that works. In fact, let's try that. Inside your worship folder, there is actually a white piece of paper that says sermon notes. On the back of it, are the 34 recorded miracles of Jesus. All of these come right out of the Gospels. You can actually take that home with you and study all of those miracles at any given time. You can look at them in chronological order. You can study them one-on-one. You can spend time with a block of them. You can do whatever you want. Study them however you want. But at the end of it, what you will find is that the Jewish people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that were alive during those days, wanted nothing more from Jesus than miracles. There were a group of people that actually got to eat fish sandwiches with him, about 5,000 of them. They were so impressed by that miracle and so moved by it because Jesus had met their physical need that they would chase him around the Sea of Galilee hoping for the next meal. On and on and on that went. People that got to see miracles, people that got to experience them, wanted more. All the time, they wanted more. They wanted Jesus to just keep it going because those miracles were signs, and they lived by those signs. Listen to what he says to some of them when they start requesting more miracles. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Every one of those 34 miracles were given to prove that point. Jesus is going to be in the grave. He will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but then he's coming back, and his power will be seen. His power will be experienced. Interestingly enough, as you study the miracles of the Bible, John would teach us in his gospel that it's not just those 34 miracles that Jesus performed. There were more. Listen to how many. He says in John chapter 21, verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus was performing miracles all the time, so many that those that recorded the Gospels couldn't keep track of all of them. But those that were experiencing them wanted more and more and more. And in the process of that, 
they missed Jesus for who he was. Miracles can do that to us. I like the way Mark Batterson brings that whole idea together. Take a look at this. He's a talented preacher, talented author. Batterson says, don't seek miracles, follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus long enough and far enough, you'll eventually find yourself in the middle of some miracles. Everyone wants a miracle, but here's the catch. No one wants to be in a situation that necessitates one. Of course, you can't have one without the other. The prerequisite for a miracle is a problem. And the bigger the problem, the greater the potential miracle. Do you see how distraction can come in so easily when we are chasing miracles and experiences with the Lord? We want a miracle, but we don't want the problem that precedes the miracle. We want to experience the power of God, but we don't want to be placed in a position where we need to experience that. So it's kind of a catch-22. And that's why distraction can follow so quickly. It's almost as if God is moving the cups around and we are focused on our life so much that we're trying to protect it and keep it from needing a miracle so strongly that when we do, we forget all the things that God has been doing around us. We miss it. We miss it. Miracles do that to us. And that's such a strange idea because we see the 34 recorded miracles. We hear John say there were more, so many more that they can't even be recorded in the libraries of the world. Yet, they become points of distraction. Now, there are other things that will do that to us as well in our spiritual life. Like words. As we get into the New Testament, words can actually cause our minds to spin out of control. We'll come across things like parables, stories that Jesus would tell that leave us confused. We'll come across hard sayings in the New Testament that leave our minds and our hearts completely at wonder. We will come across hard sayings of Jesus that will cause us to get distracted to the point of blindness. We won't even be able to see what he has been doing. We won't be able to hold on to the hope that we need to. Everything begins to fall away because of these hard sayings from him. Like this in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He has shared some very tough things with them, very difficult things with them. He's told them that one of them would betray him. He's told them that Peter would deny him. He's told them that the world is going to hate them because of him. Those are tough sayings. Those are hard teachings. And then he ties it all together by saying to them, and oh, by the way, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm about to leave, and you're going to be here on your own. And then he gives them this crown jewel. Take a look at this, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, or in some translations, trouble. Now that's, that's hard teaching from Jesus you have followed me, you believe in me, you have trusted me, and I'm just telling you that in this world, you're going to have trouble. It's not going to be smooth sailing all the time. Those are words shared with the disciples, but we would do well to listen to them ourselves. In this world, we're going to have trouble. We are going to have need for miracles. We are going to have need for God's intervention, but oftentimes, if we're paying attention, we can already see it. We could already experience it before he has to supernaturally intervene just by having our eyes open. 
So Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but listen to what he says next. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now there's the good news. In the midst of our lives, in the midst of the difficulties that we face, in the midst of the troubles that become a part of us, Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That in and of itself is somewhat difficult teaching from him. I have overcome the world. During the days of the first Easter, the crucifixion, it didn't look that way. It really didn't. The idea of Jesus being an overcomer seemed so foreign and distant from the apostles that it it really didn't seem to resonate with them. In the hours after Jesus would say those words to them, everything would fall apart. I was sitting at my computer this last week and just started writing. Some words were flowing off of the screen and I was writing from the perspective of what Easter might have been like in hell what it might have been like from the demonic perspective. As we look at all of the words that Jesus would say during those times, there's one sentence that had to have captured their attention. In fact, before we even get into this, let me show you the seven words of Jesus from the cross. We'll just put them up here on the screen. These are the last statements of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, to the best of teachers and scholars' abilities, they believe that this is the actual chronological order in which those words were shared. Even though they come out of different gospels, this is the chronological order in which those seven statements came the last statements of Jesus on the cross. In our distracted blindness, in our way of not seeing the whole of everything that's going on, there are just two of those statements that we tend to grab hold of. The first one, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. No, let's go back to all of them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the fourth one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And oftentimes when we're grabbing hold of the last seven statements of Jesus from the cross and those two rise to the top, we reverse their order. We change the actual progression of how they were said. And number four becomes the most popular, the most often quoted statement of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then because we long for forgiveness in our own lives, Number one then kicks in, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and we can easily twist that to, Father, forgive me. And the Lord is always faithful to do that. Jesus is always faithful to do that, even in those moments where we think that God has forsaken us. But it is actually the sixth statement of Jesus that we need to grab hold of. It is possibly the most powerful of the seven. Take a look at this one. It is finished. That's the most powerful, the most personal. It's true for us, and it was true even in the spiritual realm as the demonic watched the crucifixion. Listen to this. When Jesus was arrested, he didn't appear to be much of an overcomer. In Pilate's chambers, he seemed to be surrendering. When Herod Herod visited with him, it looked to be a kangaroo court. 
Dressed in bright purple, the light that he brought to the world was fading. The crown of thorns on his head, he seemed completely defeated. A cross stretched on his back gave no hope. With each blow of the hammer, spikes piercing his skin, bringing forth his blood, victory for the world seemed guaranteed. His mother cried, John looked away, Peter ran, the others no one knows. As a sour sponge touched his lips for a few brief moments, it was as if hell itself was opened and the voices of the demonic horde could be heard. Celebration, victory chants, promises of a new kingdom, one ruled by an evil sense of self. The hellacious tempest grew as the soldiers rolled the dice. Mock him, mock him, he is weak. Follow us, was the cry of the deep. A hush fell over the fallen ones when the bruised and battered Savior uttered his last words. It is finished. A few emotionally charged, ignorant demons wanted to agree. That's right, it's finished. But prompted by a spirit they'd not heard in thousands of years, they could not speak. They could only look. Their yellow, stained, blurry eyes saw their leader hang his head in defeat, and they heard him whisper, It is finished. It is finished. Yes, we are. We are finished. You see, that's part of the reason that those words from Jesus on the cross, it is finished, changed everything. Even for the demonic, those that were trying to prevent salvation from coming into the world, when they heard Jesus say those words, it is finished, they knew that they were finished. It is finished is a a statement that when those three words are put together can change all of the heavenly realm. It can change all of the earthly realm. It can change our realm. It can change our personal lives. Those three words, it is finished. Placed together in one sentence, they carry a power that we don't find anywhere else. It is finished is what allows Jesus to say, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It is finished are the words of overcomers, and they were first uttered by the Lord himself. If you were to study, just do a word study in the Bible, you would find out that the word it is and finished are used multiple times but only one time are they used together and that's from the mouth of Jesus and that leads him to a place where he can say take heart I have overcome the world and when we understand that my goodness when we understand that it will broaden our vision so much that we're not just focused on our situations but we can see the hand of God as he is working all around us and it takes another statement from the bible in order to see that that's this one take a look at it once for all that idea of it is finished once for all allows us to see what God has done, not just in our lives, but in everyone else's life. Seven different times in the New Testament, that term, that sentence is used once for all, so that we could understand the power of what happened during the first Easter. And it wasn't just on the cross, it was all the way through to the resurrection. When Jesus said, it is finished, he could have easily followed it up by saying, once for all, for all mankind. Here's what it sounds like. This is from the book of Hebrews, ninth chapter, verse 24. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. That's why out of those seven statements that we hear from Jesus on the cross, that is the most significant one. Because it is finished brings forgiveness into our lives. It is finished allows us to acknowledge that God has not forsaken us. He has loved us. And he has loved us all the way through, once for all, that we might live with him forever. Isn't that great news? That's what makes Jesus an overcomer. That's why he could say, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's why that is so personal, because it means that he has defeated every enemy we will ever face. Every enemy, even the last one. This is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. Paul writes these words. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Easter shows us that Jesus did it. He destroyed death. When he walked out of the grave, even that was finished. For those that would call upon his name, death holds no victory. And therefore, nothing else does either. He has overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. It is finished. Instead of listening to those words, we hang our hat on my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Those words were said by Jesus from the cross, and they have been uttered multiple times since then. I wouldn't even begin to try to count how many people have said those same words. The disheartened, the discouraged, the lonely, the oppressed, the persecuted, whether that is real or even imagined. Those that have been abandoned and left alone, those that have been disappointed by life, those that had expectations of the Lord and it appears that those expectations weren't met. It's easy for us to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once we push through that, we can grab hold of what really matters, the words of Jesus that really matter. It is finished. Whatever it is that you have dealt with, it is finished. You can give that to the resurrected Christ it is finished. You can leave it with him. You don't have to carry it with you. It is finished, was buried in the tomb. And when Jesus walked out of there, he brought new life for everyone, past, present, and future. It is finished once for all. Whatever it is that you deal with, whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever trouble it is that you face in this world, it is finished. Take heart. He has overcome the world. He has overcome whatever it is that you have to contend with. Allow your vision to be stretched enough that you can see all that he has done. And then allow your vision to shrink enough that you can see the power of the resurrection in your own life. That's how we overcome through the blood of the lamb and through the hope of a resurrected Christ.
That is the message of Easter, and it's a good one. It really is. Allow your vision to be stretched, and then allow it to shrink so that you see the things that really matter, all the ways that God has worked in your life and is working in your life. Why don't you stand with me, and we will pray. As we're praying, we're going to obviously thank the Lord for all that He has done for us. We're going to ask Him to continue to do those things because they change our lives. But this morning, if you are struggling with different things, things that have yet to be finished, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to take those. I want to encourage you to lay those at His feet and allow Him to do what only He can with them until you get to a place where you could say, because of Jesus, that is finished, and I stand redeemed. That stands redeemed before Him. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the love that is demonstrated to us during this season. I am grateful, Father, that still on our calendars, we place Easter there, and people celebrate you all around the world. I don't know that we always celebrate the way we should. I don't know that we always celebrate the resurrection the way we should. But Father, I still am grateful that we have this day reserved just for this purpose because it allows us to look deeply into an empty tomb. It allows us to look deeply into our own lives. Today allows us to take a look at the things that are yet to be finished. And we can ask if we've given them to you. We can ask if we have surrendered those things to you. We can ask, Lord, if we have overcome. And we can realize that that is possible because you have overcome. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that healing. Thank you, Lord, for an empty tomb that changes our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.